Welcome to the 48th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is The Real Story Behind Hightower's Reinvention, a conversation with Bob Oros, CEO of the firm. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. In 2008, Elliot Weisbluth set out to build a turnkey solution for wirehouse advisors who wanted more independence and control but who weren't interested in the heavy lifting of starting a business, nor the day-to-day management of things like legal, compliance, and operations. And so, Hightower Advisors was born, pioneering a model that would not only survive the 2009 financial crisis, but thrive on the heels of the disruption and ensuing distrust of big brokerage firms. It was a perfect storm which fueled the success of Hightower and many other quasi-independent firms born shortly thereafter, forever changing the wealth management landscape and opening up a new world of options for advisors who were in search of a better way to grow their businesses and serve their clients. Fast forward a decade, and Hightower has morphed its business model from an employee-based partnership to an investor in independent firms. And Mr. Weisbluth stepped down as CEO, leaving some big shoes to fill. In January of 2019, Bob Oros took over the helm of this iconic firm. Few people would be up for the task of driving Hightower into a new decade and through a landscape that looks very different from the one in which it helped forge. Yet Bob brings with him a great deal of experience and expertise having previously held top positions at HD Vest, Fidelity, Schwab, and LPL. He joins us today to talk about Hightower's evolution, their recent shift toward RIA firm acquisitions, the firm's role in the new world order, and plans for the future under his watch. There's lots to discuss, so let's jump right in. Bob, I'm incredibly grateful. I know you've got a busy schedule and so grateful for your time. Really happy to be here at your recording studio in New Jersey. Thank you. So lots to talk about. Let's jump in. For those unfamiliar, I'd love it if you'd share a bit about your background prior to becoming the CEO of Hightower at the start of this year. Absolutely. I really call myself sort of a lifer in the the independent world. So I've spent most of my 30 years working with financial advisors in some form or fashion. And I've had the opportunity to sit in a number of different seats in different business models, which I think gives me a pretty well-informed view of the market and our advisors and some of their needs. 
So I spent many years of my career with uh, Charles Schwab. In fact, I spent 13 years where I think I really grew up as a leader, eventually made my way to Fidelity where I ran the RIA business. And most recently before joining Hightower, I was CEO of HDVest, which is an independent broker dealer that focused on tax professionals. So how did all of those roles prepare you for the role of CEO of Hightower? I'm a big believer as leaders, we're simply compilations of all of our experience. And as I said, I think having the chance to represent different models and see the unique aspects of the differences of running an independent broker dealer versus an RIA, or the time I spent at the custodian serving 3,000 registered investment advisors, were all really good experiences that just gave me a pretty well-rounded view as I go into Hightower. I mean, Hightower is a large RIA, but we also have a broker dealer and a trust company. And so I can rely on all of those experiences as I think about how do we optimize our firm and how do we think about serving our advisors. So Hightower today, Hightower 2.0, as I call it, is a very different firm than what it was when it was first launched. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I know that Hightower has done some recent acquisitions, and reports say that Hightower today is about a $70 billion firm. So one, is that correct? And how many firms are under the Hightower umbrella today? So uh, $71 billion, to be precise, of total client assets. And the way we look at it, we have 105 individual businesses, or what we would think of as P&Ls, we produce. And some of those would have been our original partners who came into the firm, Some of them are advisors that we work with on a platform basis. And then a growing number are RIAs that have chosen to transact with us. So what does the average firm look like? What's a view into sort of what some of those firms, where did they come from? How much in assets do they manage? Why did they come to Hightower? You know, pretty diverse group, which I think is an advantage because we work with all types of advisors types in terms of what types of clients they serve, how they serve them. You know, averages can be a little misleading, but the average Hightower advisory business is probably north of a half billion in assets. But I have some great advisors that are sole proprietors sitting in an office on their own with an assistant. And I have some advisors that really are little mini institutions that manage billions of dollars. And I love the fact they all have different perspectives they bring us and they help shape us as a company in their own way. Right. So let's talk about THL or Thomas H. Lee, the private equity firm that backs Hightower. We've read a lot about stuff you've even said in the press about really building this for the long term. Is Thomas H. Lee or THL the patient investor that everyone hopes that it would be? I'm not sure I would use the word patient as much as they're very purposeful. They're not operating on any artificial timeline. But at the same time, we know they're not permanent capital. They're managing money on behalf of investors who have invested in their fund and who are going to expect a return at some point. So, you know, as a leadership team and as the leader of the firm, I wake up every day thinking about how do we build a great company? How do we build a great culture? How do we serve our advisors better? Because I know if I do those things, I will create value. And that's really what Thomas H. Lee or any private equity firm is looking for. How do you create value? So timelines, I don't have a crystal ball. I know 10 years from now, it's highly unlikely they're going to be here, but I certainly expect 12 months from now, they'll continue to be my partner. And, and they're a lot more than just capital. And, and I don't want to make this simply a THL commercial, but they bring a lot in the way of consulting and business expertise to us at the same time. 
So we have a number of major initiatives we're undertaking around the foundation of the firm, and they've been invaluable in just bringing really smart experts to the table for us. That brings me to a good point that I met yesterday with an advisor who asked me a question, not about Hightower, but relative to another firm in the wealth management space that is itself also private equity backed. And the question was, aren't there risks attached to a private equity backed firm? I said, well, Probably, but there could be equally similar risks for a firm that may not be as well capitalized or not private equity backed. What is it that would concern you? And his answer was because we don't know, private equity firms are in it to make a buck and they will look to flip it or you know, add value and then get out. How do I know that I'm not going to be working for fill-in-the-blank wirehouse again when Thomas H. Lee or any other private equity firm looks to sell their stake? Well, I'm clearly biased that I'm positive pro private equity. Uh, It's been a good experience for me. And I think it implies that, number one, making money and creating value is a bad thing, which it's not. You know, I don't think we should be apologetic for that. What I think is important is, does your investor understand the nuance of this business? Meaning it's a client first business. This isn't about living inside a spreadsheet and just trying to drive maximum ROI at all costs. And it's one of the things I respected about THL as I got to know them was they really appreciated the fact we are fiduciaries. We have to put our clients' interests first. And if we're doing that, good things will accrue to the firm. So I can't sit here and predict where we'll be at the end of the day, but I know that they will be very sensitive, as will the leadership team be, to whatever our next chapter is beyond them, whether it be another private equity firm or some other ownership model. And not knowing who that name is, is fine. But I think we will be strong advocates to maintain that kind of culture we've created today. That makes sense. So let's delve in a little bit to this concept of Hightower 2.0. We were one of the first recruiters. We did actually many of the deals that Hightower, of the advisors Hightower first brought on in the first iteration of Hightower. So We know that Hightower has undergone a much publicized change of business model in the last couple of years. And in a recent Barron's article, you talked about the reasons behind that change. That is going from a partnership model where advisors were incented to join by cash and equity to an ownership model where Hightower buys a portion of a firm's equity as a permanent investor. So can you explain to our listeners what's changed and the thinking behind that major pivot? In some ways... I would say nothing's changed because from a standpoint of a fiduciary model, a client-first model, those were the basic principles on which the firm was launched, and that hasn't changed. I think what's different, and it has been an evolution more than a revolution, and it's been evolving over the last few years, which is recognition that the partnership model, the downside to that was at the end of the day, advisors were getting cash and equity, and at some point could just get up and leave. You know, I think it was predicated on the expectation there would probably be some event that happened the first few years into Hightower's launch. And then when the event doesn't happen, it puts a lot of pressure on the firm, on the leadership. And for me, I'm thrilled that I walked into a situation where our advisors are self-selecting to stay here for the long term. And I use this example, and it may be a bad one, but for whatever reason, I keep coming back to it, which is it's like a club you belong to. And if you're thinking about leaving the club, you probably treat the club a little differently than if you've chosen, I want to be a part of this club forever. And I like to say, you know, you clean up after yourself and you don't put your feet on the furniture when you know you're going to be there. 
So what's great is our advisors have chosen to want to be a part of Hightower. That was a big deal. January of 2018, we owned 23% of the revenues of the firm, which I always like to say it the opposite way, which means 77% were actually vulnerable to an advisor who could have chosen to get up and leave. And I'm thrilled that as we sit here today speaking, we own 91% of the revenues of the firm because that means we can actually act like a firm. And that doesn't mean we're creating cookie cutter advisory businesses that all do things the same way, but there's an investment in a common culture and a community that is something we can really take advantage of. So our model has shifted away from the original recruit breakaways to more of an RIA acquisitive model for the simple reason that those businesses fit very cleanly with what we're trying to create. They own their clients and it actually can be a very efficient integration because of that. It's so interesting to me because as I said, we facilitated a lot of the initial deals that Hightower did under the partnership model. I actually remember that because I was at a custodian. Exactly right. Custodying those assets. Right. Good point. But what's so interesting to me, what I always say is whether someone loved or hated Hightower then or now, the world, the industry has to credit Hightower for being a maverick in proving that wirehouse advisors would practice, would vote with their feet and go elsewhere if a model was born to give them more independence and control that the name didn't really matter, the name of the firm didn't matter, as long as they were able to continue to serve clients well and to do it in a modicum, in a good culture, in a modicum of professionalism, et cetera. And so we all credit Hightower for that. I guess it begs the question, so while it absolutely sounds like it is good for Hightower to own 91% of the firm's revenues versus 23%. How is it good then for the advisors that are under the Hightower umbrella or a prospect considering Hightower versus a million other options? Well, I I think it's good for the clients who are served by these advisors because they've made an informed choice that they feel like they're getting the services and the support to be able to deliver world-class advice to the client. So our ability to continue to invest in things ranging from technology, information security, different products and services. So these are advisors who have chosen that, you know what, I can serve my clients best here because there was nothing standing in their way. I mean, I guess you could say inertia was standing in their way, but these were folks who would have many options available to them if they thought there was a better place to serve their client. So I view these decisions as not so much, you know, a decision to do what's in their best interest or high towers, but they think that's where they can best serve their client. That's certainly compelling for the clients. And while most advisors choosing a firm or choosing an opportunity would want to make sure that what they do is in the best interest of client, it also has to be good for the advisor. So what's in it for the advisor to associate with this Hightower 2.0 value proposition? I think there's a couple of things that are clearly in it for the advisor. One is access to a community of like-minded advisors who are all trying to deliver exceptional service to their clients. And that comes out in a number of different ways in terms of the events we put on. But also, if you have a question about a client issue, you're not trying to solve it alone or with the other two or three advisors on your team. You're solving it amongst 250 advisors around the country who can all weigh in and give you perspective. 
And then the second way is we're all equity holders of Hightower. THL is our investor, our leadership team, our advisors. We all hold the same share class of equity. We're all buying into the fact that that will increase in value over time. So I think it's in those two ways, the power of the community and the fact we have this common equity that bonds us together is where they get real benefit. In this new iteration where Hightower is acquisitive as opposed to recruiting, does the model tend to appeal to wirehouse breakaways? Just because, you know, we've chosen to sort of pivot our own focus doesn't mean we're not still talking to breakaways. We absolutely do. We don't have a dedicated sales force, per se, that are focused on that. But guess what? Many of our original partners who are now part of the firm long term came out of the wirehouses. Talk about a source of networking. So we still are involved in those conversations and can facilitate a wirehouse advisor joining Hightower, either direct or joining one of our teams. So we do think there's still real value there. We've chosen not to try to go directly into the wirehouses ourselves at this point. And it's mainly because shot selection. You can only be so many things to so many people. And we've chosen where we want to direct our our efforts. So what would be in it for a wirehouse advisor, a wirehouse breakaway to join Hightower out of the gate? I think it would be very similar to any advisor conversation we would have, including with an RIA, which is access to a powerful platform, access to a community, and the opportunity to participate as part of the firm in an own stake. So we would do it in a way that looked very similar to our acquisitive efforts, but we think the values would absolutely be the same. And can you talk, just to give some clarity, what would an acquisition look like? So I'm a UBS advisor, I'm making this up, 500 million under management, and I approach Hightower, I'm interested. What could or would a deal look like? In terms of, are you buying the entire, all my equity? Are you buying a portion of it? Am I locked up for life? What does that look like? Our model is we believe in co-owned earnings. We don't want to buy 100% of an advisor, warehouse, RIA. We want to have aligned interests, and we're not looking to be a takeout successor. So we're not built to come in and buy a business and take it over and have the advisor run off into the sunset. We're really built for advisors who view being part of Hightower as a catalyst for something different, which is typically growth. So every deal for us is really bespoke. It's bespoke in how much, what the co-ownership looks like, said differently. It's bespoke in how much cash versus equity is part of the consideration. And it's really meant to flex to the unique needs of that advisor. In fact, we've got deals where partners have structured their consideration very differently. One wanted much heavier equity. One wanted way more cash. And we're able to to flex to the needs. So in an industry where 10 years ago, there were very few investors in the independent space. I mean, there might have been a rogue private equity firm that might have had an interest in a billion-dollar firm, but it certainly wasn't what it is today. And the real investor, the one real investor in the independent space was Focus Financial and then, of course, United Capital Partners. So how would you say that 
either in the way deals are structured or the way Hightower thinks about investment and ownership, how does it differ from investors like that and others today? There are many other investors in the space. First of all, I, I agree with you. It's amazing how much our industry has matured. And I think private equity is definitely a statement on that. They've seen that this is a good industry to be in. It's sticky clients. It's annuitized revenue. There's a lot to like about it. So I actually think it's a net-net good thing. I think they force our industry to run in a more professional way. We've been a cottage industry forever, which sometimes is an excuse not to do some of the things you need to do. But the way you know I think of the competitive set, if you want to say it that way, is I call it the curve of conformity. And this is not a judgment because I think as an individual advisor, it's up to you what you're trying to accomplish And the great thing is there are a number of different firms, if you're clear on your objectives, that can help you achieve it. So on the one side of the curve is low conformity, meaning it's really a financial transaction. And maybe, you know, I try to provide you some consulting or some other value-added services. On the other side is high conformity, meaning if you become part of my organization, you become us. You take on our brand. You take on the way we think about serving clients. You manage money the way we manage money. And Hightower has made the decision to sort of be in the middle. We're conforming in some ways, and that's around scale. So we try to provide scale where most RIAs are subscale. So things like HR, finance, compliance, technology, real estate, really important things for running your business, but not in the value chain to the client. And we can give scale where they don't have it on their own. I mean, frankly, I can hire better leaders to lead those types of functions because I'm $71 billion. The other side of it, I want to provide capabilities to them that hopefully they view as valuable and that can help them serve their clients or find new clients. And that's things such as we own a trust company, so I can provide you trust services. I can provide you family office services. I can help you with your marketing needs. But everything in between for us is where we've embraced their independence. You like your brand? Keep your brand. You want to continue to manage money investing in mutual funds? Go do it. You want to buy stocks and bonds? Have at it, as long as you're doing it in a compliant way that puts your clients first. That's where we're a little different, where I think most of the competitive set has sort of gone to one side of the curve or the other. We're playing and threading this needle in the middle which we think is a pretty interesting place to be. And it's resonating with a lot of these independent business owners. So would you say that it's a mix between the investment of a focused financial mixed with the platform or services that a dynasty offers? For someone who's familiar with the industry landscape, is that a good way to say it? I won't mention specific firm names, but I think you could say if the two of those married, they could look a little bit like us. Got it. And how about the way you think about the structure of a deal? So one of the things that Focus Financial as an investor does is it's a permanent investment. And they've done some breakaway deals, but not a ton. And the reason for it is, is that as so it used to be an investment front, Focus Financial was the only show in town. Today, as we just said, that's certainly not the case. So as a breakaway who might need access to capital, whether it be to take a senior partner out or to just make up for unvested deferred comp or protect savings, whatever it is, there are many different options today that didn't exist years ago. But a lot of times when a breakaway looks at Focus Financial, they say, 
permanent capital, there's no way. Yeah, you may only be buying a portion of cash flow today, but how do I know as my business grows, I lose all optionality. So how does that differ? Is that the way Hightower thinks about an investment? How does that differ? And so if you think about a firm, and I don't mean to pick on Focus Financial or zero in on them, but if you think about Hightower relative to other investment options or investors, how does it compare? We have admiration for what Focus has done and uh, watched them very closely. And Rudy and the team there, they built an incredible business. They have some incredible affiliates. We, we have a ton of respect for them. We are similar in our thinking. We come in, we're permanent capital. Now, we do have a platform business that you know is something we've done for a number of years where we are just renting our platform to others. Honestly, I don't know what the future of that is. That's something we need to really think about. Is that an area we think we can add unique advantage or not? But we are permanent. If we come in and we're buying a piece of the earnings, that is permanent. So for someone who wants to work with us, They've come to that point where they've made the decision that, hey, I want to do this because either A, I've already created something that has a ton of value and I want to de-risk and monetize that, or I recognize, boy, I need a catalyst for growth. I'm big, but I need to be part of something bigger. But if you're not quite sure or you're not quite ready or you just want to 100% bet on yourself and you don't want to have that kind of participation, we're probably not the place to start with. Well said. I agree with that assessment. If you are not sure that you're ready to partner with someone permanently, you shouldn't do it is exactly right. But if you're a wirehouse advisor and you're going independent, you're assessing independent for the first time, right? And so there's a wide, many options, a huge playing field, a huge waterfall of possibilities. What would you say to that advisor is the advantage and disadvantage of permanent capital? You know, again, I think it depends on where they're at themselves in terms of their own age and timeline they're operating under, what type of team they have around them. There are a lot of factors that would come into how I would counsel somebody in that situation. But again, if uncertain, don't go into a permanent situation because you can always have that choice down the road. And what I think I would say with strong conviction is I've rarely, if ever met a breakaway who's gone independent that hasn't said, I wished I did it, and I wished I did it sooner. I just bumped into one at lunch today who we had that very conversation. So I think that's the message here, and you can always choose to control your destiny down the road. Yes, I would agree with that as well, 100%. What do you make of the one of the hottest models this year, Rockefeller Capital Management? And granted, it's a different model than a high tower. Um, it's an employee-based model, but still – a sophisticated wirehouse advisor who is exploring his options is very likely to look at both. Hightower would likely be part of the solution set or opportunity set, and today so would Rockefeller. I don't know details of Rockefeller or how they do what they do, but I would just say this, that I'm a big believer in water finds its level. That's why I'm always happy to sit on a panel with people who may be doing similar things as Hightower because I don't believe we win because, you know, we've got some marginal capability that's better than everyone else. I think it's the totality of your offering. It's the culture you bring to it uh, that ultimately somebody chooses to go one direction or another. And if I could use a real story with you, and I think it's a, it's a fun way to think about the nuance of culture. And I do think culture is a really important driver 
in advisors, whether it's a breakaway or an RIA, making a decision. And there is a, an RIA who recently made a decision to join Hightower, and he shared a story with me around wine at dinner. And he was out to dinner with a, another firm that was sort of courting him, and they were ordering very expensive bottles of wine, which to this advisor was actually a negative because he puts ice cubes in his red wine. So the funny part of that story is that to him was symbolic of the cultural differences that likely existed between the firms. So I guess maybe you can think of Hightower as ice cubes in your red wine. I don't know. Um, What's the moral uh, of that story? Yeah. You know, but, but I think there is a moral, which is culture really does matter. And at the end of the day, you've got to find a home, irregardless of where you're coming from, that is going to be a great home a month from now, six months from now, five years from now. And there are plenty of great firms out there doing it who have really good brands, who have great capabilities. But you got to take the time to figure out who is what I want to be in the foxhole with? I think that that's a great point that at this point we've recorded episodes with some 50 guests representing probably 30 different options in the independent space. And that in and of itself is pretty awesome because it shows just how many different options there are. And we think that's a great thing. Optionality is great for the end client. It's great for the advisor, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we could debate the the similarities and differences between models, but people almost always make the final decision based upon just cultural. Who do they like? Who do I think I am most like? Yeah, on a spreadsheet, we all look very similar. Exactly. You know, we check a lot of boxes. And so the big question is, so how do you do that? You don't do it over one dinner. You don't do it over someone's best sales presentation. My advice is you've got to take a time to do it. You need to see people in a number of different settings. You need to get past the people they want you to see and get to a, a broader set of people who, you know, that will tell you what a firm is really made of. You know, what's it feel like when I walk in the door as a stranger and the receptionist greets me? What's it sound like when they answer the phone? I mean, there's all these little things that you need to start to stitch together to figure out what kind of culture is this really? Yeah. Because no, guess what? We're all going to tell you we have a good culture. I would think. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think in today's day and age, everybody tries to differentiate themselves. They, culture is a, is a big word. Everybody uses it. We've got a great culture. I think it's fair to say that everyone has their own unique culture, and it's about determining which culture is the most right for you. So you said, you know, tell us a story. Could you share with us, whether it be based upon the last couple of deals you've done, acquisitions you've done, or just firms that are under the high tower umbrella today, those firms, what did they look like on their own? What were they looking to solve for and why high tower? So I think there's a common theme for us, which are the firms that are attracted to us. They're great firms in their own right. They're not broken. They don't need fixing. They have strong management teams. They may have figured out succession. Maybe they haven't quite yet. But these are really good, well-led organizations that have an orientation towards growth. So these are not firms that are selling because they have to sell. In fact, conventional wisdom, our last three deals, one was over $2 billion, one was pushing $5 billion, and the third one was a billion. Conventional wisdom, those are large enough to go it alone. So this isn't a story of small selling to big. This is big recognizing they need to get bigger, and they need access to better experts broader resources. And frankly, they need time. The one thing none of us can manufacture more of is time. 
So advisors who are spending their time worrying about HR, worrying about did billing happen, are not spending their time with their clients or finding new clients. So the attraction to us has been a mix of you give me time back. In fact, uh, you know, one of our acquisitions earlier this year, I, I think he said it really, really well when I had a conversation with him, which is my most valuable currency is my capacity to serve families. Coming to you gave me the capacity to serve more families. And I love that because it's about the client. It's also about what he loves. So I think that's the commonality of the folks that are attracted to us. You know, if you're looking to sell out and be gone in six months, we're probably not the right place. I say probably because every situation is unique. But if you're motivated to continue to run the firm, to be in the game, and you want to grow, then, you know, we're probably worth a conversation. Right. So with respect to the notion of people potentially valuing time and capacity more than valuing control and ownership, would you say that that was true? Was that true for billion-dollar Lexington Wealth Management, $5 billion California-based Lord Murray, et cetera? Maybe I'll start with Lexington Wealth Management, which I have to say is personally sweet because I just relocated to Chicago. I lived in Lexington, Massachusetts, and I got to know Mike and Chris because I got tired of them. I was at Fidelity. I got tired of walking by their office and not having a relationship with them. So I called them and said, you know, we just need to know each other. And actually, that was five or six years ago and got to build a relationship and really realize what a great firm not just they were big and growing, but so focused on how can I run my business better? How can I do things better? How can we be better leaders? And they were one of the rare ones willing to invest in consultants and coaches to challenge them and to be holding them accountable. And I share that because I think that was part of the attraction of, yeah, I might be giving up something, but I'm getting a whole lot more in return was their view. And these were folks who were growing double digits. They know how to grow, but they wanted time and they wanted to be a part of a community where others could make them better. And conversely, they'll help make other people better. And I think it's a common theme with Lord Murray. Uh, They're very focused on, they want to be a national player. Uh, They're not satisfied with being a very large California second office in Baton Rouge, I think is uh, how you would say it as a Cajun. You know, they want to be a national firm. And so they saw, boy, we could try to do this alone, or we could partner with a firm who not only could help us with the expertise, you know, I have an M&A team of 14 people, but also capital. So that combination was attractive to both Lexington and Lord Murray, that they want to both grow organically and inorganically. So I guess what you're saying is it's the rare or increasingly less rare CEO that obviously loves his or her independence, but can think entrepreneurially and bigger picture and says, yes, it may mean giving up some modicum of control, but in return, I get to solve for accelerated growth and capacity and scale and community and whatever else it may be. And I don't have to do it alone. And I think you nailed it. There is an increasing amount of self-realization out there that they don't have all the answers. And that joining somebody who can contribute to their thinking, to their strategy, and their execution is actually their best pass forward. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something that I'm sharing with you and our listening audience is that we get calls almost daily from RIA firms that are asking us to recruit for them. 
I can't make a generalization, but generally speaking, it is the firms that are backed by private equity or part of a community like a Hightower that are best positioned to be able to recruit. So if I had a choice or the ability to recruit for two different billion-dollar firms, two different billion-dollar firms approached me. One was backed by a Hightower and the other was privately held and didn't have the deal-making expertise, the capital, the community, the scale, the the knowledge and know-how and all of it of a Hightower or someone else like it, it would be much less appealing for us to take them on as a client. Because guess what? Doing one deal that maybe you did with someone you've known for 20 years in your community does not make you an acquirer. And it gets easy to confuse the two or, hey, I've got open space in my office does not make you an acquirer. It might make you in need of finding someone, but it takes real expertise. This is not a sideline. And most deals that get done aren't getting done on equity swaps. They're getting done because cash gets outlaid. And I think that's where it starts to draw the line between those who are really capable of doing it. And it it is where the capital makes a big difference. So I was just going to say, in all these situations for us, like we can be as much in the forefront as they want us to be or as much in the background. So what's so interesting to me is that 10 years ago, let's say, as the independent movement was becoming more mainstream, if you talked to a wirehouse advisor who was considering independence and you mentioned that one of the benefits was being able to grow inorganically, to add M&A and recruiting to the mix of organic growth, to increase operating leverage and margins and value of the firm, they would have looked at you like you had three heads. I have no interest in building a firm. All I want to do is grow my business, et cetera. But today, as it's become more mainstream and we're watching more billion-dollar firms be born, we lead with that because it's one of the things that's most appealing and because M&A is so incredibly red-hot. There's a challenge with that, and the challenge is are you really capable of doing it? At the end of the day – Do you know what it means to bring somebody into a firm, assimilate them, do all the integration, and to be able to start to share the stage with more and more folks? And, you know, I used to do this from stage, 100 advisors in the audience, how many of you would like to grow by acquisition? And I would joke 98 out of 100 hands would go up. Two people were honest. Of the 98, I could peel it back and I would quickly find it's less than one table that's really qualified to do it. And my concern has always been, if you're focused on a strategy that you're really not likely to be successful at, that means you're actually foregoing the things you should be doing. So my word of caution to folks is really think long and hard. And if you're committed to growing inorganically, then you've got to have people who are doing nothing but focusing on that. You've got to have a blueprint for how to do it. You've got to have answers to all the questions that are going to get asked of you. Because guess what? In that first meeting, if you can't answer the basics about a deal, game over because it is competitive. I couldn't agree with you more. Well said. So let's talk about we say M&A is red hot and it is. Do you think that continues? It certainly doesn't slow down. Whether it continues at the current pace, I think only only time will tell. But, you know, we've got this convergence of events, which is the calendar doesn't lie. Advisors are getting older. They're starting to think about what's the rest of my life look like. And 10 years ago, we were talking about it, but the average age was early 50s. That's me, so I'll call that young. You know, now they're 60, 63, 65, and they really have to deal with the issue. Valuations are high. And I can tell you as a buyer, you know, it's a full valuation marketplace for a good advisory firm. So that is contributing. 
And I think also there's this dynamic being created of there's going to be a flood of people coming into the market they want to sell. Right now, you can argue it is a seller's market. At some point, that's going to flip. And it's going to become a buyer's market as volume of deals go up. And they go up at a much higher pace than the number of sellers coming in, at which time it will now become a buyer's market. And I think we're already on the early side of that, where buyers can be a lot more selective. I look at our own pipeline. You know, Our conversation now is not about go find the next new deal. It's actually about how do we want to prioritize this number that we have to make sure we're focused on the ones who we think are the best fits. So what's the message then as the tide could turn from, because I agree with you, it's been a strong seller's market for a long time now, as the tide may turn or shift from strong seller's market to buyer's market, what then is the message to either a wirehouse advisor or an employee advisor who's thinking about going independent and has an interest in building an enterprise that they wind up selling at the end of the day? And conversely, what's the message to an RIA principal that is a standalone, independent, privately held, thinking about selling? For me, the message is the same to either one. And I personally don't like to use fear to try to shake people to go do something. My message is get educated. Like there's nothing worse than an advisor who hasn't taken the time to go out and understand what's the value of their business. Who are the players? What do they have to offer? You don't have to do anything. I mean, that's the beauty. You know, in my opinion, you do need to allocate time to go out and get smart about what options are there, the pros and cons, and whether you choose to act, that's up to you. Lexington's a great example. We've used them a couple of times here. When they started their process, and it was almost clean January 2nd start, they didn't know if they would do anything. That's how they went into it, which I think is healthy. We don't have to do anything. We're growing. We're profitable. We're thriving. Our clients are happy that we're still relatively young as principals. We have runway, but we know we need to get smart and see if there's a better option. They looked at everything under the sun, and they would tell you that. I think they looked at 22 options, which I probably wouldn't recommend that. It's a little bit like looking at 22 houses on a house hunting trip. Which one had the kitchen I liked? But they looked at everything, and they ultimately decided there was something that was worth doing that thought that would make them better. So my message is get educated. What you choose to do with it is up to you. That's always my message as well. And what does Hightower look like five and 10 years down the road? I mean, we talked about who knows if THL is still the private equity partner behind it, but what are the kind of things that Hightower is looking at or thinking about or concerned about in order to make sure that it remains relevant? Yeah, I'm not a big crystal ball guy that's going to try to make some big pronouncements about five and 10 years. But I would tell you, uh, we're believers that great businesses are made up of doing a lot of small things right. So we're very focused on just doing all the little things around providing service, providing a great platform, protecting the assets, increasingly things like information security. We cannot invest enough money to protect the data. But I think we see where this industry is going, which is broader and broader services being required deepening the relationships between advisor and client with more and more. And so what we're preparing to do is continue to build out the services available because we think at the end of the day, deep relationships rule the day. Deep relationships you know, ensure you're not going to be met with pricing compression, which, by the way, I'm not a huge believer in. In fact, I probably have the other point of view, which is I think most advisors don't charge enough 
for what they do and the value they create. So we're very focused on doing all the little things right, continuing to expand the capabilities we can bring our advisors that they can then bring to their clients. That makes good sense. There are a million other questions I could ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time and everybody else's. One last question. What's a day in the life like of Bob Oros? How do you spend your time? I wish there was a prototypical day. I'd like to say it was spent uh, going to the office in the morning, coming home at night, but that would probably be misleading. But, you know, I over-index my time on thinking about our advisors and how do we help them drive organic growth. I really do. We've spent a lot of time talking about M&A, which would probably lead people to believe I'm, I'm a deal guy, and, and I'm not. I think the greatest sign of a healthy, thriving business is same-store sales, organic growth. Can that advisor get more money from the existing client? Can they go find the next new client? So as a business, we're proud. We're growing at 9% on an organic basis, and that's a legit number. There's no market. There's no inorganic in there. So we're thinking about how do we make that a 12 to 15% organic growth business? So I over-index my time on advisors and thinking about what can we do to help them do that. And then honestly, I spent a lot of time on infrastructure and making sure we're building the right foundation here. And then the third part of my time, if you want to think of it as thirds, is uh, I spent a lot of time with my private equity partner because they're smart. They give me great advice. And also because, you know, I want to help make their job easier because they have people they're accountable to. So every day is a little different, but that tends to be where I spend the majority of my time between those three things. Yeah. Bob, this was an incredibly delightful conversation. As I said, I'm pretty confident if they let us, we'd go on and on for hours, but we won't do that. But thank you for your time. And I hope that this will be the first of several conversations on the topic. Thanks, Mindy. Always a pleasure to see you. And I look forward to our next conversation. As M&A in the independent space remains red hot, more advisors are considering taking on equity partners in order to solve for succession, growth, capacity, and scale. The decision as to whether to take on a partner comes down to what the owner values most, maintaining 100% control or taking on a partner that can make your firm bigger and better. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with a breakaway who traveled a little bit different path to independence. Rob Nelson, founding partner and CEO of Minneapolis-based North Rock Partners, started in the wealth management world at an independent broker-dealer. He outgrew the model and morphed the business eventually into a fee-only firm. This now nearly $4 billion RIA firm that serves high net worth clients, many of whom are professional athletes, made news in April of 2019 when they took on capital partner New York Private Bank and Trust's Emigrant Partners. And then they made even bigger headlines in June when they recruited NBA All-Star Tony Parker, who recently retired from the San Antonio Spurs. It's an incredible story of extraordinary growth growth as Rob shares he couldn't realize under an independent broker-dealer umbrella. It's a great story, and I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for more valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. 
And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.